G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We just took a little detour last week to discuss the idea of names in the Bible before we start getting into these genealogies, but we are back and about to get stuck into our coverage of the primeval history. And this one's going to be an exciting episode indeed. Yeah, that's right. I can't wait to get into this episode, Chris, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be excited to finally get an episode about Enoch. Well, that is until they realise that this isn't the famous Enoch. We're talking about that other guy. The other guy? Yeah, that's right. There are two Enochs, and this is the one in Genesis 4, not the one in Genesis 5. Ah, a tale of two Enochs. Yeah, this is the lesser of two Enochs. These puns just write themselves, don't they? Isn't it wonderful how language works? It sort of kills a good joke to explain it, but when you, when you say a tale of two Enochs, I think about the expression derived from the popular story called A Tale of Two Cities. And this chapter, as we're going to find out, it's all about cities. And, of course, I followed that one up with The Lesser of Two Enochs, which, of course, is a play on the expression The Lesser of Two Evils. So now that we've made the connection between evil and cities, we're going to see that the Jewish writers here were doing the same thing. They were. I mean, of course they were. That's why I said that. I knew you were going with that, obviously, because you know what? I'm smart. Sure. Now, uh, having said all that, we could get into a discussion on cities, but I'm saving for next week. Because for now, I just want to focus on this man named Enoch. So let's begin with our text, as is our want. Big, big passage this week. Genesis 4, verse 17a. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. There it is. That's all I'm going to say. That's right. I did stop halfway through that verse because we've got a bit more to tackle on our next episode, which will have a lot of power to explain how this all fits into history. It might seem like a stupid thing to have to talk about at this point, but I want to draw attention to the very ordinary way in which Cain has this child with his wife. This is actually really important. And it's not important because it's unusual or strange or something you need to be paying attention to in particular. It's important because it's so normal and so ordinary and so expected. This statement of the origin of Enoch is particularly powerful in contrast to what will follow as we progress through this narrative. Cain and his wife had their child in a very ordinary and natural way, just like any of us would, you know, boy meets girl, yada, yada, yada. The language reflects that of the birth of Cain himself earlier, yada, yada, yada. But we don't get a story about how Enoch got his name. Wait a minute, why do you keep saying yada, yada, yada? What's that all about? Well, you know, that's what you say when you don't want to give all the details. You just want to be succinct. Yeah, but they're having sex, right? You just yada yada over the best part. Who does that? Well, actually, Jewish people do it all the time. They yada yada over sex? No, that's how they talk about sex. That word yada, it means to know something, as in to know someone in the biblical sense, if you know what I mean. <laughs> right. So to yada is to know, and by know, we mean to have sex. Right. Well, sometimes. So we're not just doing that Seinfeld sketch then. This is us actually learning Hebrew. Yeah, and I'm making this point because I want people to see that this is the normal way to talk about how two people bring about the birth of the next generation. That's important for two reasons. Number one, because it helps us to understand the kind of language we would expect to find in a genealogy. And number two, because it's another slap in the face for the serpent seed doctrine, which uses the same language but is supposed to mean something different like it wasn't really an ordinary sexual experience with a man and his wife that brought about the birth of Cain. And we're not going back over all that again, because anyone who's been listening for at least the entire fourth season of the podcast should know that you really can't defend that doctrine at all. Anyway, as I was saying, this character named Enoch doesn't have any kind of a story in the text that tells us how he got his name. Right away, that tells you that this character is not going to play a major role in the unfolding story of God and his people. And yet, Enoch was intended for greatness. How do we know that? How can we say anything at all about this guy, given that we know so little about him from the Bible? It's all in the names, Chris. This is why I love genealogies so much. The names are everything. But I should probably start by saying that Enoch wasn't actually a name at all until the biblical period where a similar name appears a few times with reference to Hanok, the son of Reuben and grandson of Jacob. 
So you don't have a proper name based on the root that gives us Enoch in any language group, in any culture, anywhere in the ancient Near East until the biblical period. This is going back to the Exodus, but the story we're reading is a younger story that is written later about an older time, which happened earlier. So what I'm saying, just to be really clear about this, is that all the stuff in the primeval history happened long before most of the names that exist in the story were even a thing. These are names that are put in there by people who lived after the period, and the names are designed to tell us stuff, not to tell us what that guy's mother called him when he was born. We talked about that last week, but it was different last week because the example we used was Adam. And Adam has a very ancient name that predates everything in the Bible. Anyway, I'm going to suggest that if this little factoid here is resulting in deconstruction for you, then you need to find a more robust foundation for your faith than simply the idea that everything here has to be taken literally. You know this podcast by now. That's not what we do. So just quickly, let's have a look at the name Enoch. We say Enoch in our English translation. That's basically carried across from Latin. So we have St. Jerome to thank for that. And it comes out that way in Latin, even though the Hebrew is actually Hanok with that guttural clearing the throat kind of sound at the beginning, which of course is not a feature of the Greek from which the Latin translation was derived. In this situation in Genesis 4, the name Enoch appears for the first time and has no immediate context shedding light on its origin. However, the related name Hanok, which I just mentioned, has an Egyptian context given that the people of Israel came out of there. And that is the background for the person named Hanok. So that's not to say that this is an Egyptian name, but there is definitely an Egyptian point of reference for its origin. And that fact wouldn't have been lost on an Israelite audience. Enoch might have been a real guy, but that's not the point. This isn't about historicity. And the author isn't trying to make the point that you can connect genealogies back to a certain point in time to prove the authenticity of scripture. That's not the point. Didn't you say last week that a lot of the names in the primeval history were Semitic names that originated with the Amorites? Yeah, that's right. We're seeing the influence of the Amorites that ruled Egypt during the time of the Exodus reflected in the name of Enoch here. And you're saying that this story about prehistoric events was written after the Exodus, even though it actually happened before then. That's right. And the author is using names from the culture he lives in to describe these characters who lived earlier. Exactly. And that's how we get a name like Enoch, which was basically fabricated for the sake of this story, based on Hanok, which only came about in the middle of the second millennium BC. Now, I have actually spoken about this in some small amount of detail on a previous episode of the podcast way back in our first season. What I'm actually going to do is I'm going to play you the clip from that episode, which was episode number eight, in which I quite ironically state that I wasn't going to talk about this material in season four. I guess the joke's on me. And that's why you shouldn't trust me as a prophet. I will, of course, have more to say about this after I've played the clip, but this will just give you a bit of a flavor of where I'm going here. In case you don't remember this earlier episode, which was a bit of a gem. So here's the clip. So Danny asking us via Facebook asks, can you tell us about the connection between the Egyptian Ankh hieroglyph and the Nephilim? And I'm sure you'll correct my pronunciation of Ankh. Uh, you did pretty well. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's a great question, partly because it's an awesome rabbit trail that we can follow, which ties us in nicely to our core material here, and partly because it's one of the very few questions I've been asked lately that I'm not saving for our coverage of Genesis 2, 3, and 4. We get a lot of questions about all that. But yeah, incidentally, this came up because I commented on a Facebook post that I saw somewhere, and Danny asked for more information, so here it is. Now, everyone's seen the Ankh around, whether you think you have or not. It's that Egyptian symbol that looks kind of like a Christian cross, except that the top part has a loop on it. You find it everywhere. It's got a long history, and the problem with history, as most people do it, is that they read it backwards. I've said this before, and I'll no doubt say it again. Reading modern interpretation back into the past doesn't help you understand the past, it just exposes your worldview and your filters. That's how we ended up with the flat earth hypothesis. So let's dispense with the Gnosticism, the New Age mysticism and all that key of life garbage that turned up late in the piece. Let's try and do this right. The Ankh is first attested in ancient Egypt as far back as 3000 BC, but the forerunner to the Ankh goes back even further 
in ancient Mesopotamia. If you're into Mesopotamian folklore, you may have heard of the tale of Enlil and the Anzu bird. This bird called Anzu, the heavenly eagle, steals the tablet of destinies from Enlil and takes it up high and far away out of reach. The other gods try to retrieve it. Depending on the version you read, the hero of the story varies according to the date of the text. In one it's Ninurta, in a later one it's Marduk. You know, insert relevant deity here. The, uh, the Anzu, incidentally, is born of the union of heaven and earth. Now that should ring some bells for anyone who's been studying the giants. The important thing to remember is not the specifics of the particular version, but the general theme as a trope in literature. The heavenly eagle ascends to a high and therefore divine place, having taken from the god something he was using to rule the world. Now if we fast forward to Egypt in uh, 3000 BC, the depiction of the Anzu bird has been simplified from a feathered anthropomorphic demon with claws and wings and a bird of prey style hooked beak to a simple stick figure of an ascending bird in flight with its head uppermost spread wings and tail feathers outstretched and this is the ark the simple pictogram is now a symbol of ascent toward the divine and power over destiny for this reason the earliest examples of it are found in association with royal and divine persons a famous example of the use of the ark to convey ascent is in the carved relief at Dendera in Egypt, in the Temple of Hathor, which is called by science fiction historians, and I'm doing air quotes, um, the, the Dendera light bulb. Now this symbolic carving shows a sacred boat and a snake ascending from the middle of a lotus flower. But since the image looks to a modern person very similar to a light bulb, well, some people just can't let go of that. If it looks like a light bulb to me, then it must be a light bulb. Even if there is an inscription right there in the carving that says the snake ascends from the lotus of the ship. The hieroglyph translated as ascends is the ark. And as I said before, this is why we do history forwards, not backwards. <laughs> so the, uh, the ancient aliens, that guy was wrong? Oh, yeah, it wouldn't be the first time either. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, the ark symbol is not just a simplified picture of a bird. It's also a visual representation of the cosmic tree motif. For those of you who have read Answers to Giant Questions, this will be familiar turf. The tree reaches up to the sun in its attempt to achieve divinity. At the top we have the solar deity, head of the pantheon, and beneath is the tree reaching up towards the heavens. There's a famous passage that tells a cosmic tree story. It's very well known. I'm talking, of course, about Daniel 4. Now here's part of the passage uh, in the King James Version, from uh, verse 17. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones, to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof, for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. The king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. The tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. It is thou, O king, that art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw a watcher, an holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that they shall drive thee from men, 
and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen. And they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. After that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquillity. All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honour of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. And he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers, and his nails like birds' claws. Alright, so that's the end of the passage. Now we all saw the cosmic tree there, right? But uh, did you see the Anzu bird? The watchers are observing the king from on high when they see him go too far, attributing his success to his own power and majesty. As a result, the power to rule the world is taken from him, snatched away by a creature that has the power to declare and enact the king's destiny. And what does Nebuchadnezzar resemble after his seven years of madness? It says, His hairs were grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. Nebuchadnezzar physically resembled the Anzu bird. That's something I've uh, never seen before. Yeah, two powerful ancient tropes overlap here in Daniel 4 to convey the age-old story of the king who tried to be a god and got cut down. On the one hand, Nebuchadnezzar is the cosmic tree reaching upward to claim divinity. On the other, his destiny is snatched away from on high while he descends into madness and eventually comes to resemble his assailant. How art thou fallen? Here's another example from scripture, again familiar to readers of answers to giant questions. This time we don't see the Anzu, but it's an Egyptian context, so that aspect of the trope is less relevant. Here it's all about the tree. We're going to read Ezekiel. God is using a motif that the Pharaoh can't miss because it's embedded in Egyptian culture. Here's the text of Ezekiel 31 from the King James Version. I'll just read verses 2 to 11, finish with verse 18. Son of man, speak unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude. Whom art thou like in thy greatness? Behold, the Assyrian was a cedar in Lebanon with fair branches, and with a shadowing shroud, and of a high stature, and his top was among the thick boughs. The waters made him great, the deep set him up on high, with her rivers running about his plants, and sent out her little rivers unto all the trees of the field. Therefore his height was exalted above all the trees of the field, and his boughs were multiplied, and his branches became long because of the multitude of waters when he shot forth. All the fowls of heaven made their nests in his boughs, and under his branches did the beasts of the field bring forth their young, and under his shadow dwelt all great nations. Thus was he fair in his greatness, in the length of his branches, for his root was by great waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not hide him. The fir trees were not like his boughs. And the chestnut trees were not like his branches, nor any tree in the garden of God was like unto him in his beauty. I have made him fair by the multitude of his branches, so that all the trees of Eden that were in the garden of God envied him. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Because thou hast lifted up thyself in height, and he hath shot up his top among the thick boughs, and his heart is lifted up in his height, 
I have therefore delivered him into the hand of the mighty one of the heathen. He shall surely deal with him. I have driven him out for his wickedness. Then verse 18. To whom art thou thus like in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? Yet thou shalt be brought down with the trees of Eden unto the nether part of the earth. Thou shalt lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with them that be slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, saith the Lord God. Yep, I definitely caught the, uh, the tree symbolism there. Yeah, well, this passage couldn't be clearer on the cosmic tree language. The tree is a divinized king who has a place on the divine council, but overstepping his bounds, he's disgraced and destroyed. In the book, I talk about the reference to the Assyrian and how this same name is applied to Nimrod elsewhere in Scripture. What should be clear now is that the idea of the misguided human endeavor to become godlike is an attempt at an ascent to glorification. The ark symbol represents this connection between humanity and deity, connecting heaven and earth. The vocalization of the ark as a word was similar to our modern pronunciation based on the spelling when written in script, which has remained largely unchanged aside from differences in dialect. The basic triliteral root ANK remains and is found in many ancient Near Eastern languages. It shouldn't surprise us then to find that this root appears later in Greek and also in Hebrew. What may surprise you is what that means for our interpretation where we find it. When the Greeks emerged from that Egyptian culture, they called their divinized god kings by the title of Anax. These were said to be the sons of Zeus Arbios. Arba means tree. Sound familiar? This practice was not limited to the Greeks. It was also found in Anatolia, where the Hurrians had come out of Mesopotamia. And that leads us directly to the biblical sons of Anak. So Joshua chapter 14, uh, verse 15a. And the name of Hebron before was Kiriath Arba, which Arba was a great man among the Anakim. And Joshua 15:13. And unto Caleb the son of Jephunneh, he gave a part among the children of Judah according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, even the city of Arba, the father of Anak, which city is Hebron. And again in Joshua 21, verse 11, And they gave them the city of Arba, the father of Anak, which city is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, with the suburbs thereof round about it. The biblical Arba was a man, probably a divinized king of the Anakim. He would have been contemporary with Og of Bashan. Wasn't Og the guy who had the really big bed that was like 13 feet long or something? He was a giant? Yeah, yeah, he was. But the bed wasn't made to fit him. It had another purpose that we might talk about another time. Despite the Greek connection in the uh, terms Anaks, and Arbios, there is still a distinctively Egyptian flavour to the accounts of the Anakim, as seen in Numbers 13.22. And they ascended by the south and came unto Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the children of Anak, were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Note that the three names mentioned are Egyptian names, and the author gives us some Egyptian context by mentioning Zoan in connection with Hebron. And, as if we needed reminding, the Anakim were giants. Uh, when we read Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, the Emims dwelt therein in times past, a people great and many, and tall as the Anakims, which also were accounted giants as the Anakims, but the Moabites call them Emims. Emim means terrors. And Deuteronomy 9, verse 2, a people great and tall, the children of the Anakims, whom thou knowest, and of whom thou hast heard say, Who can stand before the children of Anak? So what does Anakim mean in light of what we know about the history of that title? Well, it doesn't mean long-necked. That's a play on words that takes into account the Hebrew word for neck and the fact that they were tall. The Anakim were the ascended ones, or lofty ones, or something like that. The title doesn't mean tall, but it helps that they were tall anyway, as we saw in Scripture, it doesn't mean high up, but it helps that they lived in the mountains of Canaan. This is about that ascent to divinity on human terms, 
first by Nimrod at Eridu, then by others in the cult he started. Performing necromancy rituals to use death magic for power, the inhabitants of Canaan transformed themselves into physical giants, indwelt by the spirits of the dead Nephilim. And that is why the author can say in Numbers 13, verse 33, And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Now, that's all we have time for today, so I'm not going to tell you about how the name Enoch preserves this aspect of the Divine Ascent traditions. You can read Answers to Giant Questions for that. Well, Tim, you certainly know how to leave us in suspense. <laughs> all right, that's the end of the clip. I hope you enjoyed that little blast from the past there. That gives us something of a sense of the origin of this name by having a look at the terminology that gave rise to it. Again, you should be able to recognise the Egyptian background behind the name. We sounds like such younger men in, those, in that clip. Uh, so what does all that tell us about the guy in our text in Genesis 4? Enoch represents mankind's attempt at achieving divinity, and we can't really say what that looks like at this early stage because there's so little recorded about this man. But there are some things we do know from the context. The first thing we know is that he descended from the line of kingship that was established first with Adam and passed down to Cain as the eldest son. And just to be clear, I should stress that in no way is this author making any attempt to connect this kingship with that inscription that we know of called the Sumerian King List. So if you're trying to find equivalences and match up names and that sort of thing, let me just save you a whole lot of time and relieve you of the need to do that because it's going to get you nowhere. That doesn't even work for Genesis 5. Never mind this chapter. I keep saying that this isn't a history book and the author isn't trying to give us historicity and none of this should be taken as any form of history that we're familiar with in the modern age because ancient people did not do that. And this author is certainly not doing that. You're just not going to get perfect correspondences between the records of different people groups in different periods of time, written in different languages and for different reasons, and have these things magically line up to give you some kind of chronology of the history of man or something like that. That's not how this works. So having dispensed with these notions of historicity and without denying the truth of the message that the scriptural author has for us, let's have a look at Enoch. In the name Enoch, we find connotations of growth. This is the idea of something ascending like a plant that's growing or a shoot coming up out of the earth, a tree reaching toward the heavens. And in the clip that I just played, you will have heard me talk about that. This is the ambition of ascent toward the divine realm. The author is telling us that Cain and his wife brought forth a child and he was known for this desire and this ambition and this effort to become associated somehow with the divine nature of the gods. We're not expected to believe that he achieved this by any means and certainly the overall negative tone of this chapter suggests that these efforts did not come to fruition. But even if they had, it would not have been viewed positively. What we're seeing here is that this guy Enoch, who the author portrays as a real person by virtue of his descent from Cain, represents for us the endeavours of humanity to achieve glorification by their own means. And we've seen that in the text since we were reading back in Genesis 3 about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This name Enoch is designed to give us the sense that mankind was striving toward the pinnacle of this kind of pursuit. The text tells us that Cain knew his wife and she conceived and brought forth Enoch. Now, this is a fairly natural way to talk about the way that human beings come into the world, as I've already said. But the idea of conceiving found in this word applies not only to the origin of the human being in the womb. This is the same kind of terminology that you use to talk in terms of making a plan or developing a plot or a scheme. So the text signals intention here, not just on the part of the individual whose name is Enoch, but on the part of his parents, and seeing the name Enoch as representative of this striving toward the divine, we're informed as to the intention of the parents, which was to eliminate the gap between humanity and divinity. So the intent is there, the effort is there, the striving for the attainment of divinity, and the notion that godhood is somehow achievable is coming through in this statement. The name of Enoch is based on not just the stuff that I've already talked about with regard to the Mesopotamian ideas and the Egyptian terminology, but there's also a play on a Hebrew word meaning to be initiated, dedicated, or trained. You don't normally get this in a proper name. So you can see here the intent of the author to convey this idea in that he doesn't choose an existing name, but basically fabricates one that conveys the meaning he's looking for. And this idea of initiation or training indicates probably something of a cultic or ritual nature, because unlike kingship or something like that, you don't just get born into it. To be initiated in something is to come into it from the outside. Enoch is someone who has been brought up and trained in a particular way of life, 
and in the tradition established by his father, that would indicate an allegiance not to his creator, but to another god. And we talked about that earlier in the season when we looked at the sacrifice of Abel at the hands of Cain. This isn't a good thing. The dedication that is implied in the name of Enoch is not dedication to the creator. I want to point out, though, that there's a passive sense to this name. Enoch is initiated or trained, but he's not doing those things. He's not a sage or master. This isn't the active sense of dedication, like when you dedicate yourself to an activity. He has been dedicated by his father. He's the one being prepared as the one who will oppose any potential seed of the woman that may arise if he gets the chance. But don't write him off as a mere pupil. He sounds like a dark lord of the Sith. At last, we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi. At last, we will have revenge. You have been well trained, my young apprentice. There will be no match for you. Terrible. Anyway, uh, Kane may be the original bad guy, but his story basically comes down to privileged older son gets shown up by the younger brother and uses revenge as the means by which to ensure his own survival. It's hardly the work of a professional. But Enoch is different. He's an educated man. He's got discipline. He's got skills. Cain's taken everything he has and distilled it into Enoch. We don't know who else has been giving Enoch an education either, but soon we're going to see what will become of it. Soon. But now it's time for some giant questions uh, Q&A. All right, let's go. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Timothy asked in the Divine Council Worldview Discussion Group on Facebook, is there more than one Satan? Considering that it's a job description, are there Satans? And since rebellious heavenly hosts aren't allowed in the Divine Council, was a non-rebellious Satan the accuser in Job in the Divine Council? Hmm. All right. Well, that is a question that I hear quite a lot. And the answer I give isn't going to be the same as what you would hear from most commentators on this. Let's just start with a bit of scripture because I think that's where we need to be getting our answers from instead of the textbooks written about scriptures. I'm going to start with a bit of a thorny one. Numbers chapter 22, verse 22a from the ESV. But God's anger was kindled because he went, this is Balaam, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. But that doesn't say anything about Satan. Yeah, it does. I love this one. It's possibly the best example of correct grammar when referring to Satan in all of the English Bible translations I've ever seen. Just in this instance, mind you, the ESV manages to stuff it up elsewhere. The word Satan is often correctly translated as adversary, just like you see here. So this one was really good, unlike this next example from the NIV. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Now here we have a classic case of false dichotomy between definite article and proper name. Guess what? It isn't either of those. In that case, it should have been translated the way the ESV handled it in the example we just looked at. This next one is coming from the New Living Translation. This is Job chapter 1, verse 6. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Well, we had high hopes for you, NLT, but unfortunately, you let us down by translating the same word in two different ways instead of just doing it once correctly. The accuser would have been fine, and it could have done without the capital letter. Thanks very much. That seems a bit redundant. Almost as bad as saying a bit redundant instead of just redundant. Uh, oh, yeah, good point. Okay, let's try the Hebrew Bible one last time with this final passage from Zechariah chapter 3. This time I'm going to read from the Bible in basic English. And he let me see Joshua, the high priest, in his place before the angel of the Lord and the Satan in his right hand, ready to take up a cause against him. So close. We actually had a definite article used where it was supposed to be used, but then we left the word Satan untranslated and capitalized as a proper name. It would have been much better using a phrase like the accuser, as we saw in the previous example. So close, yet so far. All right. So that was a few examples of where we find Satan in the Old Testament. I just want to point out in that second example I read that came from First Chronicles, we actually get two accounts of that story. 
And the other one appears in 2 Samuel 24, where we get told that it is God who opposed David. And the question of whether it is God or Satan goes away really quickly when we realize that the term Satan in that passage should really just be translated as an adversary or something like that, because it's not a personal name. Look at how the Net Bible translates it. This is the New English translation. First Chronicles 21 verse 1, an adversary opposed Israel, inciting David to count how many warriors Israel had. So if you asked, was it God or Satan who opposed Israel, the answer would have been God. If you asked, was it God or an adversary who opposed Israel, the answer would have been yes. Yeah. Notice the absence of the definite article there. So just to be really clear on that, I'm not saying that God and Satan are the same or anything of that nature. I'm simply saying that God can oppose somebody and become their adversary, which is the situation we also find in that verse in Numbers where God opposes Balaam. And in that case, it's the angel of the Lord who is the adversary or a Satan against Balaam. The next two examples are a lot more straightforward. These are descriptions of things in the unseen realm. And in both cases, the definite article is used prior to the word Satan, which makes it the adversary in both cases. And given the obvious divine council setting, it's expected that there is an adversary performing that function in that setting, which is why the definite article is in place. So once again, it's not a personal name, and we have no reason to conclude that in any of the four instances that I've quoted, we might expect to be talking about the same individual person, especially not in the first two where it's actually God. There are a handful of other uses of the term Satan to describe an adversary, and in those situations, we're talking about a human who's acting as an adversary, not a divine being. But now I want to talk about Second Temple period literature that predates the New Testament. So I have a few examples here. The first one comes from First Enoch. This is First Enoch chapter 40, verse 7. And I heard the fourth voice, keeping off the Satans and not allowing them to come before the Lord of Spirits to accuse those who dwell on the earth. It should be pretty clear in that example that the term Satan is being used in the plural, and that is most definitely not in a setting where we might assume we were talking about ordinary human beings. Now let's have a look at Jubilees. Jubilees, chapter 40, verse 9, And the land of Egypt was at peace before Pharaoh because of Joseph. For the Lord was with him and gave him favour and mercy for all his generations before all those who knew him. And those who heard concerning him and Pharaoh's kingdom was well ordered, and there was no Satan and no evil person therein. And again from Jubilees, chapter 46, verse 2, and there was no Satan, nor any evil, in all the days of the life of Joseph, which he lived after his father Jacob. For all the Egyptians honoured the children of Israel all the days of the life of Joseph. And lastly, from Jubilees, chapter 50, verse 5. And the Jubilees shall pass by until Israel is cleansed from all guilt of fornication and uncleanness and pollution and sin and error and dwells with confidence in all the land, and there shall be no more a Satan or any evil one, and the land shall be clean from that time forevermore. What you'll notice there is the repetition of the phrase, and there was no Satan, in the first couple of passages from Jubilees there, and in the last one, there shall be no more a Satan or any evil one. And all of those references use the term Satan without a definite article or any explicit number, so the possibility is definitely open there for multiple Satans without being specific. Now we're going to have a look at some New Testament passages, and we'll get started in the Gospels. Matthew 4, verse 10 from the NIV, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In this instance, we have a divine adversary, but we probably have the proper name in use. In Matthew 12:26 NIV, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And again, we have the name of the divine adversary as Satan. And in Matthew 16:23 from the NIV again, Jesus turned and said to Peter, "Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns." So this time we have a human adversary in the form of St. Peter. Yeah, that's right. Uh, here's Luke 10, verse 18, again from the NIV. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
And this example is probably the most interesting because the 70 disciples went out to different regions all over the land, and this time Jesus says that he saw Satan fall. What we find as we go through scripture from the Hebrew Bible into the Second Temple period and culminating in the New Testament is that the adversaries or opponents of God are spoken of as individual enemies at first, but as time goes on, we see the idea of these Satans converging into a single entity representative of the many adversaries. If the 70 disciples caused Satan to fall, as Jesus implied, then Satan must be more than a single entity. Interesting. Yeah, so what we have is the idea of one entity whose name is Satan, who acts as representative of this multiplicity of adversaries. And whether there is actually one single entity whose name is Satan and who happens to be in charge of the enemies of God actually isn't the point. The point is that if you're in opposition to God, then you are not on God's side, and that makes you an enemy. That makes you a Satan. And this is something that I talked about in some detail in my book concerning the Leviathan. As we read the book of Job, we find the first two chapters provide the first bookend to the story in which we're introduced to the adversary or the Satan. And once again, it's not a proper name in the book of Job. And when we get to the conclusion of the book, we have our second bookend, which is where God challenges Job and his understanding of this divine enemy, which he calls Behemoth and Leviathan. What we need to understand is that these ideas are meant to be taken together, not separately. The enemies of God are spoken of collectively, and whether we use a term like Leviathan or Satan, all we're doing is putting a representative name on this group. The forces of evil and chaos are not necessarily unified or organized or arranged in some kind of hierarchy. That doesn't matter. All that matters is that these are in opposition to God, and therefore they are not on God's side, but on the side of the enemy. And in the situation with Job, when we see the Satan inflicting suffering upon Job, it happens in a variety of ways. Firstly, Job loses his beasts of burden and his servants to foreign raiders. Then all his flocks and more servants get killed by the fire of God, which came down from heaven. Then he loses his means of transport to other foreign raiding parties. And then his whole family get killed in a storm, which destroys the house they were in. And after all of that, Job loses his health. It should be noted that in all of these circumstances, the active antagonist is never an individual named Satan. Every time it is portrayed as if some random catastrophic event just happened. There's no leader. There's no organization. There's no hierarchy. And if we'd not been privy to the divine council scenario that was playing out in the background, we would never have known what caused all that stuff to happen to Job. Imagine what's going on in unseen places while the various dramas of our own lives are unfolding. I talked about this in some depth in my book and to quote myself just briefly, I said this. The concept revealed in the Bible is not that Leviathan is a physical dragon or a person or possibly even a single entity. Leviathan is used as the personification of the combined forces of evil, united in their aim of opposition to God. And this becomes obvious when we realize that chaos never strikes at a single point, but always pursues a single goal. Just as Job lost his family, his assets, his income, his workforce, and almost everything in one terrifying instance, when chaos strikes, it is an assault on all fronts by a multitude of forces with a single aim in mind. That's the end of the quote, and in case you missed it, it comes from my book, Answers to Giant Questions, which you can get on Amazon. Shameless plug, over. This means that when we look at the situation that Job found himself in, we have to realise that either Satan can do all of this stuff by himself, or he was in fact able to manipulate thousands of individuals who unwittingly cooperated to bring about Job's demise. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm quite reluctant to ascribe the kind of power that God alone should have to an inferior being like Satan. I believe that what we're seeing in this picture is a situation in which many combined forces of evil became united in the opposition of God and his faithful servant, and that involves foreign nations, weather events, diseases, and you might even include Job's wife and friends if you think about it. And that doesn't have to be organised and structured and decided by a committee or anything like that. This is chaos manifest. Basically, the Satan really just had to instigate a few different things to set the ball rolling. He probably had no idea how it was going to work out. So there are absolutely, definitely a multiplicity of Satans. And if we are not acting in accordance to the will of God and with our loyalty firmly placed in God, then even we may find ourselves among them like Peter did.
when he opposed Jesus. That's a scary thought. Yeah. And then when Jesus sent out the disciples to spread the gospel, they came back and he told them that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. There were 70 disciples sent out. There are 70 nations in the biblical world. There are 70 sons of El in Canaanite mythology. There were 70 sons of Israel brought out from Egypt to occupy Canaan. 70 sons of God set over the nations. These correspondences cannot be ignored. But I'll tell you what, you can forget about taking that number literally. The number is designed to reflect totality. You have seven being the number of divine totality. You have 10 being the number of human totality. Seven times 10 gives you 70. And the idea is that the entire creation of the heavens and the earth is to be brought under the authority of God by means of faithful representatives of God. So it wasn't one Satan, it was 70. And again, that's not a literal figure you could count. What does it mean actually to say that Satan fell? Well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. First, let's talk about what it means to be outside of the community of God's faithful representatives, which then puts you among the number of God's enemies. There is no middle ground. Look at the way the Apostle Paul talks about the idea of being handed over to Satan, which basically means being excluded or cut off from the body of Christ. This is 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5 from the NIV. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So what's going on? This might be puzzling at first, but it's quite rightly explained by this idea that all of God's enemies are collectively referred to as Satan. That means if you're cut off from the church, then you are handed over to Satan by default. We see this again in 1 Timothy. First uh, Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Excommunication means that you're off the team, and if you want to get back on the team, and you can get back on the team as long as you draw breath, then you need to align yourself with Christ and with his body, the church. Then you can come back into fellowship, become part of the body once more, and through repentance, maintain your position of loyalty to God and unity with his body. On the one hand, God wants to teach Job a lesson, and on the other hand, it is the Satan who does God's will by causing Job to suffer, which is necessary for Job to learn that lesson. Paul excommunicates the unrepentant to hand them over to Satan, and the lesson is repentance. After that, they're welcomed back into the family of God for their salvation. Satan is referred to as the tempter, and when he tempts Jesus, we're told that Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted, and that temptation is later spoken of as testing. We can't separate testing from temptation because the test is to see how you stand up under temptation. When you're put to the test, you will experience temptation. God is testing you. Satan is tempting you. God's will is being done in both aspects, although God does not tempt us and Satan does not test us. The only way this works is in the paradigm of God's sovereignty. God can use his enemies to accomplish his will because he knows what his enemy is going to do. He will just use the inclination of his enemy toward evil to accomplish a greater good. So let me just be really clear about this and say that it's not like God and Satan are two sides of the same coin. That is absolutely not what's going on here. I think we need to get back to the question. Uh, yes. Well, uh, getting back to the question, and specifically with regard to the divine council, it is quite common that there's this idea that fallen divine beings are not allowed in the divine council. And yet I see no scriptural support for that notion at all. When we consider that the Satan in the book of Job intends to bring harm upon Job, which is consistent with his nature, we have to realize that this guy still had a seat at the table, so to speak. Likewise, in the situation with King Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 22, God convenes his council and the spirits decide how they're going to deal with Ahab. And one of them just comes straight out and says, I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. Again, a divine being acting according to its fallen nature, participating in the decision-making process in the divine council. And that doesn't change after the advent of Christ, because the Apostle Paul still talks about principalities and powers and rulers in heavenly places that we struggle against. Those are clearly adversarial powers. So you can't tell me that Revelation 12 describes some kind of a situation in which the divine council is stripped of all its members who are inclined towards evil. Even though Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, that doesn't necessitate this idea that God isn't going to use those powers and authorities as he always has done to accomplish his will. That's important because once you strip the supernatural forces of evil out of the divine council, you end up with a situation where bad things are happening because a good God determines that it should be so and makes it happen. But you're in dangerous territory when you start making God chiefly responsible for evil. 
Honestly, I haven't seen anyone put forth any reasonable argument for the defeat of the supernatural forces of evil that accounts for the fact that they are still active today and God still works everything out providentially. And the non sequitur that occurs in every attempt to speak of the victory of Jesus Christ over the powers is quite simply that Jesus says he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And Revelation 12 describes this war in heaven, which is believed to occur at the ascension of Christ. And yet, Paul still tells us that he urges propriety in worship because of the angels and that our struggle is against principalities, powers, rulers and authorities in heavenly places. People are going to argue and say, well, Paul also says this in Colossians 2.15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Yeah, that's right. He did say that. But let's have a look at it in context. We're going to read Colossians 2 verses 9 to 15. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So it turns out that this passage isn't about the ultimate defeat of the powers. It's about the way that Jesus has liberated us from their power. It's about baptism and how coming into the community of faith makes a spectacle of the powers. Baptism is that spectacle. That's why it's a public event. It's a declaration to those powers that they have lost you and that you are safe in the hands of God. But it's not about Satan and the fallen angels getting cast into the lake of fire. This is your salvation, not the ultimate victory over the territorial spirits that still dominate the world. That means that much like the coming of the kingdom of God, we're seeing it achieved in the hearts of believers and not in some kind of geopolitical realization. The kingdom of God expands and the defeat of the fallen powers happens at the same time and in the same way because it's fought over the same territory, the hearts of men. That's how Satan falls. And that's really what I'm getting at here. The victory of Christ is not a geographical victory. We've come so far in our understanding of who Christ is and what he came to do. Let's not fall back into disputes about politics and geography like a first century zealot. The victory of Christ and the kingdom of our God is within us. If you're allegiant to Christ and filled with his spirit, then he is your king. You are subject to his kingdom, released from the bondage of the principalities and powers of the world. If you're waiting for the judgment of the powers and principalities, and the death of the gods as described in Psalm 82, then you're going to have to keep waiting because that's coming at the final judgment. So the bad guys are still out there and they still have the ability to come before God and to accuse the brethren. But all that really matters is that Christ's faithfulness to you and your allegiance to Christ mean that he is your advocate and they have no power to make their accusations stand in the sight of God. That is how we win. And Satan continues to fall to this day every time somebody breaks free from the kingdom of darkness and enters the kingdom of God. That is so good, but that's all we have time for. So we're going to have to leave it there and we'll come back next week to get into another fascinating installment of our coverage of Genesis chapter 4. Yeah, that's right, Chris. And as always, that means that once again, we'll be telling lame jokes and answering your giant questions. So stick around and we'll catch you next week. And speaking of next week, about the same time that our next episode drops, you'll be able to hear my appearance on the Dig Bible podcast. I had the pleasure of chatting with a great bunch of guys from Tennessee who love the Lord and are really interested in all this kind of stuff. So make sure that you check out thedigbiblepodcast.com and find them wherever you get your podcasts. That's all from us. We'll catch you next week. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. 
in the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephen on Amazon. Paperback and Google Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com. Read the blog and have us on socials. Don't forget to subscribe to the Friends Club Show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Possibly more of you than I needed to see at this time. Um, you've had a haircut. Yes. It's less of you than I'm used to seeing. Yeah, um, I had them all cut and I uh, even shaved the beard. You did too. Look at that. Uh, yeah, I had to go to a fancy... Uh, Cocktail party. See, so you wearing a uh, muscle shirt. Oh, look at you. We're we matching. No, I'm not wearing a muscle shirt. I'm just wearing a shirt. Well, you've got muscles. Defined by muscles. Yeah, I probably just uh, know how to throw my weight. That's probably how to describe my strength, I think. <laughs> Jeez. You know, when, when someone says retro video games to me, I'm like, you know, Pac Man. Um, That's vintage. Maybe, uh, maybe Sonic the Hedgehog, you know. Yeah, yeah. I used to have a um, Sega Mega Drive, and, um, you know, you had to bang the old uh, cartridges in the top. Yeah. And, um, we, got, we got Sonic the Hedgehog 3, and you could stick the Sonic 1 and Sonic 2 games in the top of the cartridge and plug them in again, and you could play... Uh, each oh. game sort of within the other game. What? Um, you could play, for example, like you, you could play Sonic 2 and you could bring Knuckles out of Sonic 3 into that game and oh. you could do all the new moves and manoeuvres that you had in Sonic 3 and yeah. you could put them in Sonic 2. And it was super cool because it unlocked all these things that were hidden in the game that you couldn't access before. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that was that was pretty flash for its day. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And you've got all Christmas stuff in your house at the moment, have you? Uh, you know what? We should have by now, but we have not. Uh, things have been a bit crazy around here. We'll get there. Let's see. Yeah, that we generally don't bother, but my parents certainly have. Well, it probably doesn't help that I've been blowing the entire decoration budget on eggnog oh look i support this decision no regrets this podcast proudly brought to you by paul's original eggnog beat the summer heat lay by the pool with a chilled glass of eggnog this summer ah refreshing <laughs> you know we are a podcast there's no point in holding it up to the camera yeah you just don't feel like you've done the thing unless you do it. that's true wise words all right you ready <laughs> Uh, Enoch? So, yes. You got any knock knock jokes in here? I should have, but I don't. Dog is barking. It's going to come through on my audio. <laughs> Give me a second. <laughs> Which wasn't <laughs> it wasn't that funny, but I hit my funny bone, so that made it humorous. That's what I did. Right. <laughs> now we're going for no reason. <laughs> uh.
Ah. <sighs> 